We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Hello and welcome to 10 Questions and a special shout out to everyone in lockdown right now. This episode is with one of the people I've known longest and admire most in the Australian entertainment industry and that's Dan Ehrlich. Dan's had success on Australian television thanks to writing and starring in such shows as The Ronnie John's Half Hour, Hungry Beast and Can of Worms and then taking on the grown-up job of executive producing and show running ABC shows Tonightly and at home alone together, which could really do with another series right now. He's also had stints producing satirical comedy on Al Jazeera and Fusion in the US, but because careers in entertainment don't progress in a linear fashion, whenever there's downtime, Dan's always gone back to Australia to generate his own work, whether it be live comedy, documentary, or satirical ads, and his output's always slick and funny and creates a splash. Perhaps his most enduring work is his award-winning comedy podcast, Irrational Fear, with its overarching focus on climate change. In this episode, we talk about that, plus we discuss Dan proposing to his fiance, that time his firing from a major news organisation became major news, and his extraordinary parents, how they met, and how his father's interest in comedy and social justice gave Dan a framework for his own career. But first I asked Dan when he was most happy. It's cliche, but it's true. Uh, when I proposed to my fiance, <laughs> it was uh, yeah. a beautiful, wonderful occasion on the shores of Lake Wanaka in New Zealand. And it was just just us two on the beach. And it was serendipitous and magical and just great. Just a really great feeling. Were you nervous? Oh, very nervous. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> we, went to, we went to New Zealand on a holiday and I had carried a stunt ring. Uh, I didn't have the actual ring. I had a stunt ring, <laughs> um, I had like a $300 stunt ring, nothing special in my ski pants for about three or four days. And we were skiing around trying to figure, and I was in my mind the entire time and thinking about, Oh, how do I, how do we do this? How do I propose? Um, is, is this the right time on this ski field or this ski field? Is this ski field the right time? Is this, is this Vista the right Vista? Um, there's too many people around. It can't be the right Vista. And then we were driving from Wanaka to Treble Cone for folks who know that area. And um, my fiance said, oh, let's pull over there and have a look at this, this lake. Um, and we walked out to this pebbly beach and there was no one else around. And I got a real... A real tingling in my stomach. I was like, oh, well, this is this is the moment. <laughs> Here it comes. And we were looking at the rocks on the beach, the pebbles on the beach. And my fiance went down and um and she pulled out a rock and said, Look, it's a penis rock. And I was like, oh no, no, now's not the right time. There was, there was a stone, there was a stone that looked like the penis. I was like, oh, I was just about to pull out my rock, um, but uh, no, no, no. And then a few seconds later, she leant really close to the the stones and she said, look at all these stones. They're so sparkly. And then I was like, bang, this is the moment. (laughs) So I got on one knee and I said, what about this stone? Will you marry me? (laughs) She set you up. Yes, exactly. It was like a total, total setup. It was fantastic. I got to slam dunk it. Yeah, right. It was great. It was perfect. 
yeah it was so good oh man that was great and she didn't say yes for about five minutes so i was uh while she was um very happy um and i was very happy uh five minutes after we stopped being happy and crying i said so is that a yes <laughs> she said yes so that was okay oh. that was good. and how long had you been dating oh adam not long like six months wow it was real fast yeah yeah I, I, yeah, to quote your friend Russell Crowe, one heart at a time. One heart at a time. Um, my friend Russell Crowe, who also retweeted um, my engagement picture from when we got engaged, <laughs> it was so bizarre. So, wow. Just like Russell loves love. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's really funny to have this, this this intimate moment. Yes, we put it on Twitter, but you know, no, sure, thirty thousand people might have said it on Twitter, but then Russell retweeted it, so it goes out to one point five million people. <laughs> The other high-profile South Sydney supporter in the Dan Illich camp is Andrew Denton, who, among other things, created the sketch show Hungry Beast. Denton hired Dan for the show, which premiered in 2009, and Dan remains grateful to Denton for being one of the few producers who didn't try and put him in a box. Hungry Beast was one of those moments where I worked really hard on that show, and I had I had some experience making TV before, but it kind of wasn't the right fit for the kind of stuff I like I, I wanted to do. But Hungry Beast kind of gave me this space to to run and make mistakes and 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 make good work and experiment and just to um, gave me all the tools, all the things necessary to do good work. Uh, look, it didn't pay very well, but that doesn't count. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter in hindsight. Um, what matters is that. We got given the space, the resources, the training, the, the backup, and just incredible amount of um, freedom um, within reason to make interesting things. And that was a moment. That was definitely a moment for me. Like Andrew, no, like having an inkling about what I could do, and then allowing and making, giving me resources to do it. And I think that was an incredible gift, absolutely incredible gift. And so much of our business is luck. And I was so lucky to be able to be able to get an interview for that show, to get that job and to, to meet the people I met on that show, because many of the people on that show are, are my, are my longtime collaborators and peers to this day who, mm -hmm. you know, I rely on every day um, uh, to, to, to make good stuff. So it's, um, yeah, it's no, it's just real. Yeah. It's such a, such a, a strange experience to be seen when, when you're seen after years of people putting you in a box or, or thinking that you're one thing or thinking you can't do something to have somebody who thinks you can is just incredible. And it's such a liberating experience. Mm -hmm. It's a truly liberating experience to have someone at your back who thinks you can. And that's, that's incredible. Like that's, there's no better gift than that. No. Um, and even if, you know, maybe he just, um, even just cynically, he might've just thought, well, I just got to tell these people that they can, so they can be really good. But, <laughs> but that's, that's part, I mean, that might be part of it. And it's just having someone there to say, yes, you can, you can, you can, you can do good stuff or I want or demand good stuff of you as well. So it was not an easy, it was not an easy, um, Andrew is, uh, <laughs> and he would say this, he's not an easy person to work for, but he got the best out of us and um, built a great, built a great team and extremely special family that show to work on following denton's lead dan's conscious of helping the next generation of comedy writer performer director producers even though he's still a bit of a youngster himself you, this game is so hard and you know adam and adam, you and i know each other a long time we've we've had these conversations and it's it's real it's really difficult and you just need often you just need one champion who can unblock something in your own head for you to achieve something so that's 
when when I see new people on the rise who um who I see potentially and I try and do that as well for them. So yeah, it's it it's starting to filter through to the next generation. <laughs> Question two. Who would you like to apologize to and why? Uh just any comedians who knew me in the mid noughties uh when I was trying to make it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> When, like when you're a young comedian on the rise, you're just, you're just insatiable. And like, like Mm. everything is so uh, live or die for the comedy and everything is so cut and thrust. You're always trying to get the next big break and you're always trying to hustle, hustle for something bigger, more, more stage time, more a a gig on this show, a gig on that show. You're always trying to hustle. And I don't think, um, uh, I think I was, I think, it's been made clear to me that I was very annoying when I was a younger person. <laughs> oh, really? Just, you know, people would say, you know, I remember you when you, when you came to Melbourne for Comedy Festival. You would, you would, you would hustle really hard and steal, steal our audience. And <laughs> so I really want to, I know this gets listened to by a lot of people in the community, the comedy community. I'm really sorry to folks who uh, whose noses I may have put out of joint when we were down there for <laughs> our very first comedy festival shows trying to make an impact in this stupid game we have we live in oh mate <laughs> we, we've all been there it, it's just the you know you just have there's no set path it's not like you're gonna go okay I'm gonna intern for a little while and then I'm gonna do my articles and then I'm gonna you know be a junior and then eventually work my way to partner it doesn't work like that you know? no no you have to go to the melbourne comedy festival show and you have to outflyer everyone and drag people away from their shows to come to your show that's how it's 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 combat hand-to-hand combat out of <laughs> totally um question three what is your greatest regret i i it's it's a hard one because Everything you do, um, everything you do kind of has like this sliding doors moment where what could have been. And so I try Mm. not to, regret's not a place where I try to dwell, but maybe in 2015, I was working (laughs) for Al Jazeera in uh, San Francisco and uh, I had just kind of landed. I'd been working there six months and I just managed to score management in America and uh, they sent an email through to say that the Daily Show was recasting. And so I, I'd moved to America in 2015 because I'd wanted to work on the Daily Show and I'd moved to America to kind of do satire and comedy and new satire um, and I ended up working for Al Jazeera at that, at that point doing that which was incredible um and then when these casting things came through i really wanted it really bad so i auditioned but i also used the green screen at work to record those auditions and somebody at al jazeera didn't enjoy me using that green screen at work and they told someone in Qatar that I used the green screen and work and someone in Qatar fired me. Um, I, I, from all I know was the Emir of Qatar. Uh, someone at Al Jazeera fired me in, in Qatar and I, I was, <laughs> I was un- unemployed at the time I was in Manila. I was with uh, my girlfriend at the time on vacation, visiting her work. Um, 
she works for, she works for Red Cross. She was she she she's, she doesn't live in the Philippines. But um, it was incredible to get home and go. Oh, I don't have a job, I don't have a job anymore because I used the green screen at work to audition for the Daily Show. And it made the news. I remember it. Like I remember it circling. Uh, I was a bit worried to reach out to you for a few days because I, <laughs> you know, it's like when someone suddenly yeah. made the papers because of something. You know, you go. Is this the right time to reach out to Dan, see if he's okay? Yeah, Adam, any time's a good time to reach out to me to see if I'm okay. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I really kind of regret that moment because I just, uh, I don't know what could have been if I'd stayed at that place, but who knows? Like, so I came back from Australia not long after that moment and um, then tried to figure out a way back to America and then, Six months later, I was back in America again, working for another organization doing satire. Um, mm. But at that point, the Daily Show had already been kind of cast. So, but the upside of that was I remember being at home, uh, literally at home, at my parents' home in my childhood bedroom, seeing the news that Ronnie Chang got the job. And I was really happy. I was like, oh, well, that's, mm. that is so good. Like, I'm so happy for Ronnie. This is perfect for him. And I'm like, if I couldn't have the job, I'm so thrilled that somebody I know has the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good of you. Um, you would have been great on the Daily Show, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know, but th- th- America's got a few white guys. They could have. They, <laughs> they would have had their choice of white guys to to do to, to work on the Daily Show. Question four: What will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? This is a really tricky one because um, I feel like everything twelve year old me has wanted to do. I've done like mm. it's really aside from becoming prime minister, which mm. I don't think I want to do anymore. <laughs> 12 year old me would be 12 year old me would be really impressed with like the work I've done so far. They'd yeah. be like, yeah, you've, yeah, you've really nailed it. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. You've, yeah. You worked in America. You worked on telly. You've, you've done comedy on stage. You know, this is great. So I feel like I need new goals. I don't know what those goals are. Um, but I feel like uh, at this point, I'm in a point where I'm just trying to figure out what the next, where the next 20 years of my life are, because mm. I'm not too sure. Like there's very little sustainability in doing what I do for the next 20 years, but trying to figure out like, what, I don't know, what, what else can I do? I think I just want to use my power that I have to affect change in a, in a good way or around, around the world as much as I can. And I think, the stuff that I do with irrational fear is largely does kind of some of that, but I'd love to scale irrational fear to be really effective and, and have a lot more brains and people working on it to kind of, um, to kind of force change on, on climate action around Australia that would, or around the world, even, you know, that would be, that would be great, but I've got to figure, I've got to figure that out. I don't know what else I feel very at this point with COVID and everybody locked down, I used to kind of regret, not buying a house uh, mm. and spending all my money on travel. But now I'm like, wow, I'm so, I'm so lucky. I, I, I traveled all those countries and, and did all that stuff because I don't think there's, I don't think I'd have the, um, the bravery to do it now, the courage to kind of travel now because it's so dangerous with COVID and things like that. Um, well, people who have followed you and, 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 and seen your progress over 20 years, like I, like I have, Oh, I don't know, 15 years. Um, you, you've lived the life of four people, 
you know it, it, it's <laughs> like you, you've been you, you've been everywhere and we've seen it you know we've seen you, your documentaries um some funded some done off the off your own bat um so it's, you, you have lived an interesting life and no wonder you don't have a house you've been everywhere yeah yeah no and you, you spend money on making I, I think i spend too much money on making films and comedy and things like that as well so stuff that doesn't kind of make money but that, that's fine Me too. you know it's really <laughs> i think it's fine like you know when I was a little bit younger, I think all I ever wanted to do is just leave a lot of good work behind, like a lot of really fun stuff that um, people can enjoy. So I think that's kind of, I think that's that still motivates me, like just to keep making good stuff and keep making as much good stuff as possible. And then also to that point to facilitate good stuff, to find ways that other stuff, other good stuff can get made. So I think that's kind of what drives me uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, just, just, Quickly, what what year was Irrational Fear started? What what year did you um, begin the? I, I guess it was a live podcast at the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, we started out on stage at the FBI Social as a live streaming radio comedy program at FBI Social at the Kings Cross Hotel in Sydney. Um, it was that was streamed live on on FBI Radio, and um, the pitch was basically, I want to do like a daily show for Australia because at that point. There wasn't Sean McAuliffe's show. There wasn't Charlie Pickering's show. There wasn't the number of other shows that had been on TV at that point that, that would um, allow comedians a platform to talk about the world in an interesting way and talk about climate change. So we did Rational Fear for the first time on stage, I think September um, 2012. Wow. Um, and then we, we did it monthly for a little bit there. So each month we would, we would do this live stream. And what was great is like... You, people would hear it in the car and they'd know we were live and they would drive to King's Cross and get out. And the room would be full of 100 people at the start of the show, but by the end of the show, it'd be full of 150 people because people would drive from uh, nearby areas in Sydney to come and watch the show. Um, yeah, it was really, really wild, really great show, really fun. Um, and then that would, the idea for me was like, well, I wanted to start a podcast, but I wanted to kind of have it paid for so i'll do these live streams and then take the door money and pay everybody from the door money and that worked out for a few years and then we just started doing um the podcast about once a month and then it kind of dropped off when i moved to america those few times and um over the last year i've had the privilege of being on a fellowship from the bertha foundation which meant i could i could focus on irrational fear and do irrational fear weekly uh, as a podcast and that's been extremely helpful in finding an audience and growing the podcast and you know, making it bigger and better than, than it ever has been before. So that's been, that's been great. And now, now I'm just trying to um, keep that momentum going, even though I'm off the fellowship. So it's trying to make it easier for me to make and, and uh, less content heavy um, so I can work, work around, work around it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, it's, um it's been, yeah, it's, I think it's been really great. Like to go from a pub show to a podcast to being broadcast on, FBI to being broadcast on Radio National to being performed at the Opera House three times to playing at Splendor in the Grass to touring around nationally over the last couple of years. Awards. Um, oh yeah, we won. Uh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. We got it right here. Beautiful. This is the uh, this is the Australian Podcast Awards. It's a it's would, a kind of a piece of glass. A piece of glass on a trophy. It's a trophy, a glass trophy kind of thing. If you could imagine winning an award for best salon in Bathurst, it's that kind of award. You know, that's <laughs> one of those awards they have on their front um, counter. Yeah. So we won best comedy podcast for 2020 um, at the Australian Podcast Awards, which is amazing. Like that felt that felt so good winning that because 
wow, we'd had this podcast going for eight years and we'd just been putting so much effort into it lately. And it was just so wonderful for somebody to go, yeah, that is the best comedy podcast in Australia. Of course. I think it's fantastic. Um, and by the way, they would have had to listen to a few. Yeah, I think they, I think they did. Yeah, I think they would have had like 80 or something to, to plow through. So, yeah, there's a lot of comedy podcasts out there. I know, I know. Um, question five, who is the person who most influenced you and how? There's a great writer performer called Adam Zwar who uh, <laughs> just really who is that guy? <laughs> um, look, it's I don't know. I think it's a really hard one. When I was young, I was in a musical theatre group called the Cumberland Gang Show. Oh yeah, <laughs> this was a show where. Uh, where scouts and guides put on a show every year, like a review style show every year. Um, and I, when I was in scouts, I was like, you know, 11 years old and I saw this show for the first time. I was like, I want to do that. Wow. These, these kids on stage look like they're having the best fun ever. So I auditioned for it in 92 and then got in in 93 and I, I was having the best time ever doing that. And there was a producer director of that. It was a bloke called Rob Lang. Um, who was like a major CEO of like big power, of big energy companies and like super, super kind of uh, high level C suite kind of guy. But this was what he did for fun. Like he put on this show. Wow. Um, so it was run incredibly well. And I eventually kind of grew up through the ranks and became an associate producer there and then a production and a, a, a assistant producer and then a producer of that show. And so as a 15, 16-year-old, I, I all of a sudden was being put in charge of 200, 300 people to get shit done for free. Um, and what I learned from Rob was just the incredible power of teamwork and management and getting people, like getting the best out of people for nothing. And I, And he built this incredible environment where extraordinary things could happen just off the back of people doing work, getting work done. And I, I only thought about it recently. He's kind of, he's the kind of guy that I always call when something tricky has happened in my life. Mm. Um, so I've called him a few times. The first time was when I took, when we were down for Melbourne Comedy Festival 2003 with the beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Viagra Robbery, which is this great sketch, which is great sitcom that we put on stage with people like James Pender, Heath Franklin, um, Becky Gage, who's Heath Franklin's wife, um, and Chris McDonald, um, who, who wrote that show as well, uh, was, was producing it. So we, we put on the show, the beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Viagra Robbery at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and no one was coming to it. And we're trying to figure out how can we get people to come to our six o'clock show, the Athenaeum 2. And we were two weeks into our four-week run. We were just university students, you know, 22 at the time, just had no money. And we're like freaking out that this show wasn't going to work and we were never going to go to Melbourne again. Um, and so two weeks in, Chris McDonald said, you know what, folks, um, we have to go home because we're not making enough money to kind of stay here. <laughs> and I said, no way we can fix this. Let me be in charge. <laughs> 
and and let's figure out how to do this. I think we can sell tickets straight to the audience, and we will we will change change the way we sell tickets so we can get people through the door. Um, and that's what we did. So that night, I called Rob, and I was like, Rob, I don't know what I've done. I've just taken over this show, and I don't know what to do. I I feel like one of the things we need to do is 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 have a quota so everyone can sell tickets, like we did in Gang Show. And he's like, Yeah, that's right. You know, you know, we. I try to get everyone to sell 30 tickets, all the cast members to sell 30 tickets. If you can get all of your cast members to sell 30 tickets, then you'll have, you'll start making money. I'm like, that's a great idea. So we figured out that we could get comps from the Athenaeum for 50 cents each. Back then comps from um, Ticketmaster only cost 50 cents. Now they're like $4.50 if you want to buy a comp for your own show. So for 50 cents, that was a great, way just to print a whole bunch of tickets and i printed out the night's tickets for that night and the next night and the night after and allocated everyone like 15 tickets each that they had to sell so and i forced everyone to go out on the street each day and do hand-to-hand selling and so <laughs> so we ended up by the end of the run our last two shows were sold out including our last show which had 200 people in athenaeum 2 but a, a thunderstorm an electrical storm meant Ath 2 was completely um uh, washed out and what happened was five minutes before the show we said sorry everyone we're either going to have to cancel the show or if six of you can grab our set and walk it down to Ath one <laughs> we can put on the show down there and then we had all that all like half the audience came and helped grab the set which was a big physical set and walk it down and put it on stage at Ath one uh which was ross noble's stage and uh and we performed our show uh with our tech in Ath One, which was the 1500 seater with the 200 people sitting down uh, in the stalls. And it was great. We had this, ama- this amazing bit of success. How exhilarating. Um, it was very fun. So much fun. And one of those moments where you're like, fuck, that was good. You know? Yeah. And if, if I hadn't, you know, if I hadn't called Rob just to kind of get that, get Rob to kind of back me in in that moment, um, I don't know where I would have been. And the only other time where I've, when I've called him, was when I got the job as executive producer at Tonightly. Um, because at that point, I'd only run teams as big as five. You know, like I I hadn't, I'd never run a 44-person television show before. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden I was put in charge of a, a million-dollar show with 44 people. Um, and I was like, Rob, uh, do you have any advice for like for this, for this kind of scale? He's like, yep, turn up to work every day, plant a fra- flag in the ground. Be enthusiastic and tell everyone to run to that flag every single day. Wow. And you wow. turn up, you you turn up with you turn up with that enthusiasm every day, Dan, and you'll be fine. And he was absolutely right. And it was an exhausting show to be on, but I tried to just kind of echo those words every day. And and I think, you know, Rob is a person who really inspired me. And I think uh, he, uh, my dad, my my parents were kind of unusual and my dad was quadriplegic. And my mum looked after my dad. Um, and so dad, dad couldn't do a lot of the dad type kind of things. Um, uh, he was, he was a lawyer. So he was quite, his story is quite inspiring in its own right. He, he suffered uh, a huge accident when he was 21 in the army and, um, uh, he became quadriplegic and in hospital, um, he met my mum who was a nurse on his floor. Um, and so my mum has been, was looking after him ever since. And so my mum helped him. Um, go to university um, and he worked at ASIO while he was at university. Um, And when he was growing up, he was really big on justice and and comedy. So he kind of influenced me in regards to um, showing me all the comedy 
that I had to know at that point, which is like Marx Brothers and Stan Freeberg and Bob Hope and yeah. Wayne and Schuster and Monty Python. So I got influenced a lot there. And and Dad's sense of justice is really strong. So he would he would get enraged if something was in the news that was fucked up or or something like that. And so that would be interesting to kind of see him do that. And then he would have a lot of immigrants come come through late at night. These are like clients that were off the books for him who were trying to make their way in Australia. And he would kind of help them with visas and things like that, get settled in Australia. So that was, um, that was great to see, you know, firsthand and, and seeing my mum look after him was also um, uh, pretty good too. So mum, mum is extraordinary. when I think about how she kind of built our lives by raising four kids with a disabled husband in a, in like a very middle-class um, suburb in Sydney and just absolutely killed it. Like yeah. well, when I think about my parents who are my age now, when we were little, I'm like, wow, that, they really were killing it at that age. They didn't probably didn't feel like it to them, but wow, they were, they were doing really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is an extraordinary story. And, you know, and I, I, I see that your sense of justice and also helping people um, uh, it comes through. So the apple didn't fall from, you know, far from the tree there. Um, by the way, Shane Jacobson and Dave O'Neill were both scouts, both in the gang show as well. Yes, that's right. Uh, so Shane Jacobson, um, Dave O'Neill, I, I know very well. And so we've spoken a little bit about gang show, but Shane Jacobson's, he's, uh, I don't think you'd mind me saying this. He's a bit of an aloof character around the comedy scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hard to get to and, know. Yeah, yeah he's, he's tricky to get to know. And I, he wrote one of the most famous songs in gang show called Just Like My Dad. And at a trop fest after party, uh, I think when I made it into trop fest in 2011 with, with our film um, Y2 Day, uh, I got to go to this after party and Shay Jacobson was there. And I was like, oh, sweet. Now's my time to bond with Shane Jacobson. So I went up next to him and I said, just like my dad, I want to be just like my dad. He turned around and said, now you have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when you take a risk like that and it pays off. Yeah, yeah. It was really, it was, it was one of those moments where I was like, aha, secret handshake. In we go. This was great. What so, a great, what a great moment. Now you have my attention. Now um, you have my attention. <laughs> question six. When was the last time you cried and why? I sprained my ankle yesterday and it killed. Uh, it was really, my ankles are so dodgy. It is, it is, I, I, I used to be a 30 year old something who would do a lot of CrossFit um, so I could get fit. Uh, and now I'm a late 30 something doing a lot of Pilates because of my CrossFit injuries. So <laughs> it's, um, it's really annoying. Uh, but my ankles are constantly collapsing on me. I just need to take some time to fix them up. So that's why I cried physically, but I've had, um, you know, in this game, it's really difficult to maintain stability. Uh, and I think a couple of years ago, I, 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 when you're kind of, when you don't know what's ahead of you all the time, it's extremely frustrating. Um, and a couple of times it's really happened where it's been so overwhelming that you don't know what to do. And so crying just helps. So I remember being in LA with, without a job, trying to figure out what to do next and, and seeing my bank account go down and down and down and wondering when to kind of pull the plug on, on the working and living in America dream. And I remember crying then and then maybe a couple of years ago after um, the bushfires, 
just feeling an immense sense of grief for everything we had been through as a country at that point with the bushfires and not sure about what to do next. And, Mm. um, and yeah, I think, yeah, those, those times, uh, when just a panic of not knowing what to do next can often be, um, debilitating, um, particularly if you're the kind of person who, who is their own job, Mm. who is their own, who is their own boss, who is their own person who's creating their own life. And it's, it's kind of hard to um, see what the future is when the future can look so uncertain all the time. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think the, and I, I hasten to call it depression because it's such, because it's such a confounding thing because it's, it's an enormous stress. It's just an enormous stress not wondering, you know, where the next paycheck is coming from all the time. So um, I've been, I've been very lucky over the last year to be on a fellowship um, and to score a TVC. So, you know, those things have kind of, have put me in a, a better position um, to kind of work this year. But ever since coming back from America in 2018, it's been a long, it's been a real hard journey to kind of rebuild, to kind of rebuild and get to this point again. So 2018, 19, 20, 21. So that's four years before feeling like I'm back on top of everything. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, that's, it's really hard. It's hard work. Um, I think. Um, so sometimes when, when I, when I can't see the future, that's when, um, that's when I, I'm, I sometimes have a little cry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, uh, by the way, I, I do think it's a pathway CrossFit to, to Pilates. I, I think, uh, <laughs> Pilates is there to is there to look after many CrossFit injuries. I, I, so this is the, the one thing I resent about the gym I used to go to at CrossFit was like, oh, you've injured yourself. Oh, we have in-house physio. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dan, uh, question seven: What is your current state of mind? Good. I feel really good. It's strange, isn't it? Being in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a little, I'm in lockdown in Sydney at the moment. I've been in lockdown for a month and um, it is a little frustrating, granted, but uh, I, I feel like it's just only, it's, I feel, I can feel like it's temporary and I can feel like it's going to change maybe in the next four weeks. It may only be another month of lockdown before things kind of get back to normal, but I am privileged at the moment that I've got a little bit of work coming through so I can kind of sustain myself. And and I've got big plans for the future in terms of kind of what I want to do with irrational fear. So I'm kind of working on that and just trying to um, make funny stuff from my bedroom, which is kind of what I've always done. So in these kind of times when uh, I'm a kind of self operating media node to want want to quote Nathan Barley, um, I kind of thrive because this is kind of, uh, in terms of creating and being in a space to make stuff, this is kind of yeah. what I've always done. Um, so I'm a, I'm one of the very lucky people who uh, are being asked to make things and get to make things. And at the same time, um, I'm running workshops for FBI, training people on how to make comedy for audio as well. So that's very fulfilling. So I feel I feel really good at the moment. Like it's 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 very rare. Um, to feel great. And I feel, I feel pretty great and, and kind of level-headed at the moment. So I don't have any, I don't have 
any problems at the moment, which is nice. So, um, and just trying to work on, um, me and my partner, we're just trying to work on, you know, when we get married and, um, how we have kids and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's really great fun life problems to kind of work out. And that's, that's, that's a real joy and a privilege to be in, in that state of mind. Uh, question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Well, being asked to come and do 10 questions, um, by Adam Zwar, it's always right up there. It goes, uh, Emmys, Oscars, <laughs> 10 questions. So that as well. I've seen one of these live and it's great. I was at the Tim Minchin one. Live. Right. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. That was great. That was, that was great in, in Los Angeles. It was really fun to see two good friends talking to each other. That, that's the one that Mark Humphrey said, was Dan Illich at that, um, at that audience? I, I'm pretty sure I heard his laugh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's me sucked in. Uh, sorry about that. I leave my stain everywhere. I all right where I sit. <laughs> no, mate, no, I love it. Um, um, great. I don't think I honestly don't think I've achieved it yet, and I think um, I think it's to come. I don't. I, I feel like I haven't quite haven't quite done it yet. Um, so it's it's to come. I don't. It's you know to say that I've won the Australian Podcast Awards from twenty twenty is really great, but. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, but it's not quite. It's not quite what you know. I don't know what it is. I hopefully it'll be something great, either a great bit of work or or somebody I've helped has done some great things. So I've been yeah. able to produce something great for someone, or or help somebody out in a way that has escalated them in a way that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So look, I think that's. I think it's yet to come. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Answer. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I. It's hard to say. Like, I just don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I like it. I. I I'm. I'm. I'm happy. I'm happy with that. You're satisfied with that. Uh, who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? I really like smart people, uh, and I think when you when you're a creative person, you're making something. Often, you need to team up with people who don't have the abilities that you have, and. I love making great, funny stuff. Um, and often I, I, I'm quite unsure of my own comic ability. So I love to have really smart, funny people around me to help me elevate stuff. <laughs> Same. So I like, I love, I would have, um, I would have somebody like James Colley, who's the head writer of, of, um, of, tomorrow tonight and the weekly he is a brilliant brain um and then i'd have someone who's really great with strategy um you know someone someone who can second guess all the moves down the line um i, I, I think you know someone like chaz lichardello yeah <laughs> who's I've got a very analytical brain um yeah, I don't know. This one's a this one is a tough one. Oh, but it's good. I mean, it, it's interesting because I've always had a thing where I go, I do not want to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> you know, I, I, if I'm the smartest person in the room, we're in trouble. This whole thing is going to sink. Yeah, I'm very much of the um, Barack Obama mentality. You know, ask everyone in the room what they think, and then kind of make up my my decision. Uh, have you ever Have you ever read The Operators by Michael Hastings? No. Uh, it's about General Stanley McChrystal uh, and when he took over the war in Afghanistan. And the, that book um, is full of 
egocentric madness and craziness. Uh, like these these guys who work for General McChrystal were kind of like the, the rock stars of 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 the army, and they would treat them, they kind of treat themselves like rock stars. You know, they they fly private, they stay in the best hotels, they set up. Uh, operation security in in like the most expensive hotels they work out like mad and general mccrystal's like 70 years old but he's can he can run uh, a 10 mile race every morning before work and uh just in super super um testosterone fueled um, management style and it's just fascinating read it kind of stemmed from uh, a rolling stone article that michael hastings wrote um, uh, and then it kind of blew it out to this huge book about uh, like the, this wild group of um, generals who who ran Afghanistan. Pretty fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would have General McChrystal on team, obviously. Uh, he'd be the CEO yeah, of, of the operation. <laughs> um, and what would you, lastly, what would you like your last words to be? I, I don't know. I don't know what I would say. I don't know what I would say. Um, maybe something like i left the iron on hey at least you told us we have ignition sequence start short distance high impact five four three two all engines running 10 questions with adam joie big names great minds make yourself a cup of tea liftoff we have liftoff 